Okay, so let's jump into the Gospel of Luke. We are doing two types of historical lectures today, or historical topics, less theology tonight, more background, so to speak. Uh, more background, so to speak. So this one is the Gospel of Luke, part one. So the Gospel of Luke has a rather unique history, uh, especially its use in the second century. Uh, the second century reader who had the closest uh, acceptance of Luke was this figure named Marcion. Marcion obviously is a controversial <clears throat> figure. It's recognized as a heretic. It's interesting here. He believed that God uh, it revealed in Jesus was other than and superior to God of the Old Testament. And he often was accused as, of removing things that looked Jewish in the Gospels, <clears throat> of all four Gospels, he took a close liking to the Gospel of Luke and further abbreviated it, rejected Matthew, rejected Mark, rejected John. According to Donald Hagner, Donald Hagner is a brilliant New Testament scholar. Brilliant New Testament scholar near the end of his career. Uh, as a mentor to Thomas Schreiner, that is a familiar name to anybody. He says this, says the gospel of Luke is unique just by virtue of the fact that it followed, it is followed by the second part containing a history of earliest Christianity. This suggests right away that the evangelist is interested in the story of Jesus and its immediate consequences in the birth of the church. So you have the life of Christ by Luke, followed by the start of the church, Acts, also by Luke. Luke plays an interesting role, then, in the life of the New Testament literature. Although Luke is the longest, Matthew's often the favorite. Although Paul has 13 letters, some suggest 14. We'll talk about that next term. Luke's literature still exceeds his length. Combined with Acts, Luke wrote Acts. All of Luke's literature comprised of 27% of the New Testament. Luke's material begins with the birth of Jesus and extends up through the beginning of the church and Paul's missionary journeys. So as we start our study of the Gospel of Luke, Right? I just want to kind of frame it as a question. What is the story of Luke? Right? We've talked about what's the story of Matthew. We've talked about what's the story of Mark. What's the story of Luke? How do we talk about its origins? How do we talk about its gospel formation? So we'll predominantly talk about authorship. We'll then talk about date if time permits. And then we'll talk about the historical situation. Where and to whom is this gospel written? Where and to whom is this gospel written? Most likely we won't get to number two. Most likely we won't get to number three. I'll give you a date. I'll give you a suggested date. But most likely we'll just stick on authorship. So simply by means of review, right? I've talked about this a number of times. 
you had a, a test question on this, right? I want us wrestling through these two categories as we now think through this question. External evidence and internal evidence to consider the authorship of the book. External evidence is information or data that resides outside of the actual book. We're listening to the tradition. Right? We're listening to the tradition. So it's going to hear the voices of the ancient church. It's going to look at manuscript data. Internal evidence, however, is information that resides inside the book. at its actual internal message. So when we talk about theology, we're most likely talking about internal evidence. When we're talking about the historical picture, the historical portrait, we're most likely talking about external data. Uh, I'm going to skip over manuscript data here, but I do want to show you this picture. There's an early manuscript, uh, earlier, fourth century and earlier. How do I know that? By means of its writing. Look what this says. Aeongelion kata lukon. Everyone see it? Then there's space. Then what comes next? What is it? It is Aeongelion, but what word? Eonon, the Gospel of John. So this manuscript, pre-fourth century, on the same page, closes out the gospel with an inscription, begins the next gospel with an inscription. Let's now look at the patristic testimony. This is the story that we're talking about. How did others in the second and fourth through fourth century identify the authorship of this gospel? First off, there is no papiest tradition about Luke. That stands out. I mentioned this because of the importance of Papias for the study of the Gospels, both for Matthew, Mark, Luke, or Matthew, Mark, and John. The testimony of Papias presents an early voice for the identity of these Gospels. However, Papias remains silent regarding a Lucan tradition, altogether silent. What I want to do is this affords me a little bit to just review why Papias. Papias's role in the second century Christianity connects these traditions to the eyewitness apostles. It says this, to these things also Papias, the hearer of John. Most likely John the Elder. We'll talk about this soon. Is John the disciple the same as John the Elder or is it a different John? who was also a companion of Polycarp and one of the ancients. 
yeah, when Papias records the testimony of the Gospels and the evangelist, he only mentions Mark, Matthew, sorry, Matthew, Mark, and John. This may be important to note in terms of either this suggests a later date for Luke. I don't think it does because John is seemingly composed AD 96, maybe a little bit later, but we're pushing it. So if that's the case, then we have to put Luke in the second century. I'm not comfortable doing that. Second, Papias is only recalling apostles and eyewitnesses, of which Luke is neither. Or Luke was not well used or well known in the second century. That third one is more likely. So jumping into the second and third tradition, do I need to go back to that? Yep, go for it. Yep, so the testimony of the second and third century. Keep in mind, when I say second century, what dates am I thinking of? When I say second century, what are we talking about? AD 101 to 199. So one of the first Christian testimonies of the gospel of Luke is that of Irenaeus of Leon. In a list of the evangelists, he notes the following. Luke, also the companion of Paul, reported in a book, the gospel preached by him. Again, Irenaeus records the following, but that this Luke was inseparable from Paul and his fellow laborer in the gospel. If Luke preached in the company with Paul and is called by him the beloved and with him performed the work of an evangelist and, and had, uh, was entrusted to hand down to us a gospel, learned nothing different from him, that is Paul, as has been pointed out from his words. How can these men who never attached to Paul boast that they have learned hidden and unspeakable mysteries? So from Irenaeus, make sure you get these three things. So from Irenaeus, we see that Luke is a traveling and ministry companion with Paul. The gospel of Luke is the product of Paul's gospel. And it's an apologetic to associate Luke's gospel with the ministry of Paul. It adds weight to it. It adds weight to it. Now we jump into the Miratorian canon, the Miratorian canon. 
It's one of the oldest known list of New Testament books. Some date it 170 to 180. I'm writing an article on this. Um, goodness, there are some scholars that want to put it all the way up to the fourth century. But in it, it records the following about the Gospel of Luke. The third book of the Gospel is that according to Luke. Luke, the well-known physician. We know that from Colossians. After the ascension of Christ, when Paul had taken with him as one zealous for the law, composed it in his own name, according to the general belief. Right, it's recognizing what's kind of the tradition of the day. Yet he himself had not seen the Lord in the flesh. He's not an eyewitness. <clears throat> and therefore, as he was able to ascertain events, so indeed he begins to tell the story from the birth of John. So make sure you get these here. Because what you're seeing is we're putting together the picture. We're putting together the summary of these texts, these traditions. From this, we observe Luke is a physician. Chosen by Paul after the ascension of Jesus. Writes the third gospel after his name. What's interesting is that the Miratorian fragment here, the Miratorian canon, seems to receive an already common tradition about Luke. I think we can add a fifth one here. We're going to add a fifth one. He's not an eyewitness. Remember Marcion? We started off with him. Second century heretic. A work known as anti-Marcionite prologues are now written in response to Marcion's writings. These generally date from the second to the third century. There's a little bit of problems as we try to date these. because they come from different origins. Helmut Kester is a critical scholar. He wants to see redaction in these, and so that's fine. Um, I'm, not, I'm not too interested in that. But if there's redaction, that means it changes. I don't know. I mean, it's so difficult to discern those. I'm often skeptical of redaction. Reads as this. Indeed, Luke was an Antioch Syrian, a doctor by profession, a disciple of the apostles. Later, however, he followed Paul until his martyrdom, serving the Lord blamelessly. What an interesting tradition here. He never had a wife, he never fathered children. He died at the age of 84, full of the Spirit 
in Boetia. Therefore, <clears throat> although Gospels had already been written, indeed, by Matthew in Judea and by Mark in Italy, moved by the Holy Spirit, he wrote down the Gospel in the parts of Ephesians, signifying in the preface that the others were written before his, but also that it's one of, of greatest importance for him to expound with the greatest diligence the whole series of events in his narration for the Greek believers, so that they would not be led astray by the lure of Jewish fables or seduced by the fables of the heretics and stupid solicitations fall away from the truth. That's very anti-Marcion. And so, at once at the start, he took up the extremely necessary story from the birth of John, who is the beginning of the gospel, the forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ, and was a companion in the perfecting of the people. Likewise, in the introducing of baptism and a companion of martyrdom of this disposition, the prophet Malachi, one of the 12, certainly makes mention. And indeed, afterwards, the same Luke wrote the Acts of the Apostles. It's an interesting tradition here. Has no wife, has no children, dies full life, 85. What I find interesting, because we're also going to try to talk about the synoptic problem, it'll depend on how you guys are all doing, uh, how I'm feeling at that point as well, because it's a heady issue. It assumes that Matthew and Mark have already been written, right? What does Luke 1 say? What does Luke 1 say? Someone read the first few verses for us. Taken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Which boss? Luke is already admitting that others have done this. Keep going. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Thank you. So according to this anti-Marcionite anti prologue, Matthew and Mark have already been written. Just keep that in the back of your mind as we hop into the synoptic problem. Yep. I know it's anti-Marcionite, but when is this, where is this coming from? Or when is this supposed to have been second? Marcian, Marcian is early second century. Go ahead. Being titled the prologues, would this like actually put with the book of Luke? Yeah. Keep in mind, Marcian took the canon and said, no to Matthew, no to Mark, half of Luke, no to John. So these prologues, they're an apologetic to say, here's what we know of Matthew. Here's what we know of Mark. Here's what we know of Luke and so forth. It's lost what they said of Matthew and Luke. Uh, sorry, Matthew and Mark. It's not extant. We now hop into Tertullian. 
He advances the concerns of the four Gospels. And as he writes, as he writes against Marcion, he offers a defense of the four evangelists in their respective Gospels. He notes that Luke is not an eyewitness, but that his Gospel coheres with the essential ideas of the life of Christ. It's interesting, essential ideas with the life of Christ. Uh, if you heard what Jake read, Luke writes an orderly account. I think that is telling of the kind of gospel that we're looking at. Unlike Matthew, who's a storyteller, unlike Mark, who's a storyteller, Luke's a historian. I think he is the one that writes the orderly narrative of the life of Christ. If we're going to anchor ourselves to a historical order, I'm more willing to do it to Luke. Turn over to Luke 18. Turn over to Luke 18 as we talk about this next one. Okay, Uh, I'm gonna appeal to Luke 18 in a second. But now let's dive into the fourth century, Eusebius of Caesarea. You can see his dates, right? So fourth century, even though that sounds late, look at his dates, right? It's not not that late. And he has the most extensive traditions about Luke and his gospel. In one tradition, he offers an interpretation of Luke 1, 1 to 4 that explains how other Others have attempted to do this, but because of his life with Paul and his conversations with Paul, sought to make a more true account. A normal reading of Luke 1 just says, others exist. Eusebius actually reads this to say, yeah, others existed and they were inferior. It might be true, given that there's pseudepigraphal gospels at this time, or it could legitimately mean he's aware of Matthew and Mark. In another account, Eusebius records his race, profession, and association that Luke had with the apostles. Luke was by race in Antioch, an Antiochian and a physician by profession was long a companion of Paul and had careful conversation with the other apostles. And in two inspired books left us examples of the medicine for souls, which he had gained from them. The gospel 
he testifies that he had planned according to the tradition received by him those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. All of whom, he says, moreover, he had followed from the beginning. And the Acts of the Apostles, which he composed, no longer on the evidence of hearing, but of his own eyes. So Luke is built upon eyewitness testimony. <clears throat> Acts is built off of his own observation. <clears throat> and they say that Paul was actually accustomed to quote Luke's gospel. Since when writing some of gospel as his own, he used to say, according to my gospel. Very interesting there. According to that testimony, this is the first time we're hearing this. Paul would say that that's his gospel. Paul also claimed to have written part of the gospel of Luke. Now, I don't, I'm not sold on this. Please keep that in mind. I do think that there are Paul-isms in the gospel of Luke. And I had you open up to, math, or to, to Luke 18, where I think there's one example. Someone read for us verse 9, all the way through verse 14. that talks about justification. Second, verse 13, be merciful to me. The Greek term there is be propitious to me. Make propitiation on my behalf. It's a very Pauline type statement. One more thing here, and then we'll keep moving on, is something from the Middle Ages. Now, what has more weight? Irenaeus in the second century to speak about Luke, or someone from the Middle Ages, 10th century, right? So if we're going to be talking about historical matters, this is far less credible than someone closer. But I, I, I find it fascinating nonetheless. So fourth a 14th century writer attributed to a 6th century Byzantine the following memory that an image of the mother of God was painted by the apostle Luke. 
see, do I have a picture of it? Oh, I don't have a picture of it. That's all right. Uh, there's an image. I think I might have taken it out. Yep, I took it out. If I see it, I'll show it to you. I can't believe I took it out. Oh, I sure did. Portraits, as it attributed to Luke, portrays him painting the Virgin Mary. Precisely why? It's unknown. It really is unknown. But what does all this point to, right? Let's try to summarize the story. Let's try to summarize the story. We skipped over manuscript tradition, that's fine. And then early church testimony of the third, first three to four centuries. They all do point to Luke as the gospel writer. Each early tradition generally associates Luke as a traveling companion with Paul, as a physician, and of the race of the Antiochians. So let's now look at some internal evidence. Is there anything inside of the gospel itself that helps point to authorship? Right, so especially with the near unanimous testimony of the patristic evidence, does the biblical testimony co cohere with Luke being an associate traveling companion with Paul? John Nolan remains quite skeptical that we can identify the authorship of the gospel of Luke. For him, there's no internal authorship cues. He says this, the case for Luke and authorship is not clear cut. There are, however, no decisive arguments against it. In such a situation, it would seem best to assume that the early tradition is based on a continu continuity of memory. It goes back to the first reader's undoubted knowledge of who it was who had produced this gospel for their use. Actually, disagree with that quite strongly. <clears throat> the New Testament testimony that testifies to the person of Luke, let alone his authorship, it, it is modest. It is modest. Colossians 4. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, and so does Demas. That at least tells us Paul is aware of Luke. Philemon 24 lists out Luke as a fellow worker along with Mark. I have no doubt. Well, let me back up. That's overspeaking. I have my high suspicions that if Luke knows Mark, especially by this testimony here, is he not aware of Mark's gospel? Second Timothy 4. We're just months away from Paul's death. Luke alone is with me. So now, I grant, this doesn't prove anything about Luke and authorship. But it does confirm the patristic testimony using scripture that Luke 
is a companion of Paul and knows Mark. There's another line of evidence here. Someone read for us Acts 1.1. Someone read for us Acts 1 1. Go ahead and go to Luke 1 3. Followed all things closely for some time past to write and order the account for you, most excellent. Interesting. Books claim to be written to the same person, Theophilus. Luke first, Acts second. So the Gospel of Luke and Acts seems to be a series. I'm not going to do it here. But especially when we talk about Acts authorship, it's the we passages that really provide kind of a clear autobiographical kind of testimony, if you will, that Luke kind of comes in and out of Paul's traveling missionary journeys. The first half of Acts conveys the narrative through third person, whereas parts of the second half, especially associated with Paul, Antioch, and his missionary journeys include we passages that signify the author is present. So because there remains little direct internal evidence for the authorship of the Gospel of Luke, and even though it's little, I don't think it's not unnecessary, right? So just don't, don't interpret little as not meaning, meaningful. We are quite dependent upon the external evidence. But the external evidence is unanimous. It's Luke. The patristic evidence coheres with the minimal New Testament data that Luke is a physician and traveling companion with Paul, and thereby the author of this gospel. So when we talk about what's the story of Luke's composition, it's tied up with it's tied up with Paul. Any questions? Any questions? I feel like we're doing all right on time. Let's keep rolling. We've really yet to be able to date some of these previous Gospels. If you've noticed, we've kind of cut out our lecture here. It's hard to date. Let me be really frank. It's really hard to date. At the end of the day, does it really matter when we date? Well, sort of, but sort of not really. Right? So that's why it's hard to, it's really hard for Protestants in particular to really be interested in dating issues, to be frank. Um, it's, it's very much embedded in critical scholarship. Um, 
the books you read, the commentaries you read will touch on it. So that's why I want to touch on it to try to give you some arguments to know how to navigate this, this complexity. But keep in mind, we're not dealing with theology. So it's not pinpoint, but we're dealing with windows. So think of kind of a window opening when we talk about dates and it's held, hold it open loosely. Terminus ad quim, terminus aqua. These are expressions, Latin expressions to talk about dating. Terminus ad quim is up to the last point. What's the last possible point? That's ad quim. Terminus aqua is a window within. What's the general frame within? <clears throat> so when it comes to dating, this is helpful to note the possible time frame that it could have been composed. So in odd quim, we want to ask this question. <clears throat> Who and where are the earliest references to the Gospel of Luke? Papias is already lacking. But there are signs of usages by 2nd Clement, roughly 120 CE. Possible uses by Justin Martyr, up to 160. Even Irenaeus of Leon mentions Luke as the author, 180. So at least by the mid-century, Luke is being used. Cebus testifies to John the Apostle reading and affirming all three canonical gospels prior to writing his own. So we've yet to talk about the story of John. That's where this kind of feeds into this. John is aware of the other three and purposely writes a different one. When we read the gospels, that actually makes sense. So then if that testimony holds true, Terminus ad quim is the end of the first century. It can't be beyond the first century if John is aware of it. Here's what I hope you see that I'm doing. Big circles coming down to tighter arguments. So then the terminus ad aqua is determined by the existences of the other gospels. Okay, especially in modern scholarship, mark in priority. We've yet to kind of dive into that. Mark is deemed to have been written first, then Matthew, then Luke. So if this is true, and that's a big if, Mark must preclude the composition of Luke. So if Luke is written in the mid-60s, and John is written at the turn of the, right before the turn to the second century. We at least have a 30 year window. I'm going to skip, I'm going to skip one of those features. The gospel of Luke's relation to Acts. 
Is it Luke X or is it Luke or X or Luke and X? So among the majority of modern monographs, it's, where, it's rare to see a work on the Gospel of Luke that does not also incorporate Acts. It's really rare to see that. However, that would have been the norm of manuscripts in antiquity. Luke and Acts rarely were put together and traveled together. But to date, the Gospel of Luke is dependent upon the composition of Acts. The prologues to the Gospel of Luke and to Acts link the two works together. So although the Gospel of Luke is separated from Acts, historically, Luke is the predecessor of Acts. So any judgments we make about Luke is going to affect what we think about Acts and vice versa. Then we get to the wonderful issue of Acts 28. Acts 28 is not the death of Paul, and it's not the end of Paul's life. We'll get into that next, year, uh, next uh, term. But if Luke was writing the gospel while Paul is still alive, then that means Luke precedes Paul's death. A.D. 68 max. More like AD 66. But again, the gospel of Luke is not tied to the life of Paul. In other words, like Mark, it's tied to the life of Peter. So it needs to be written around Peter's life. Luke is not so. It's, it's wrapped around Luke's life. So it could be written after Paul's death. Luke 1 and the concept of many gospels that's mentioned there. Because it mentions the appearance of other works that are written on the life of Jesus. Inasmuch as many as have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. These accounts could be Matthew and Mark. But there, but are there any more that appear in the first century? Yeah, there are tons. But this is an argument of silence. Paul makes no allusion to other gospels in written form before the composition of the canonical gospels. Here's what I mean by this. When you read the book of Galatians and you read it as a historical document, it's the first New Testament book written. It's not the gospel. So Paul's writing about how other gospels are floating around. He's not referencing actually written gospels. So Luke 1 tells us, that at least sometime needs to have undertaken that other gospels were written. This is a pusher. It pushes the date, what I'm suggesting. So what is a suggested date? 
Given the reasons above, I'm persuaded that the composition of Luke is after the composition of Mark, but prior to the composition of John. I skipped over this, but most likely after the destruction of the temple. It talks about the temple in ways that Matthew and Mark don't. The composition of Acts does not have to be tied to the death of Paul and could have been recorded after his death. As such, I remain <clears throat> unpersuaded. <clears throat> that Acts 28 and the first Roman imprisonment and 628 is the composition of Acts. Because if that were the case, then that means Luke has to precede that. Go ahead. So to say I'm taking notes, Dr. Wilhite said this in class. I took that on this date in history. Yep. But so he's, he could be writing what happened with Paul, eyewitness, he was with Paul. That doesn't mean he sent it out that way, right? So like he could still come back, write Luke, and then release. Yes. So I could say, hey, I can take all the notes I just took from yes. you. A month from now, I can say, here's what he said. Yes, exactly. Okay, yep, exactly. So if if this is when Acts is written, I don't think it is. I don't think it's AD 62. But if that's the case, then that means Luke precedes AD 62. I date Matthew. If you notice this, we rarely talked about this because I wasn't, we didn't get to it. I was letting the book do its work. Uh, uh, roughly between 64 to 66, I date Mark in a larger window from 65 to 68. So this would say Luke precedes them. No. No one, as well, a few books in New Testament scholarship suggest that, but it did not enjoy So I would say more or less early 70s is probably where I think. Up to 80, but again, that feels pretty late. Because we also have to think of his life when Luke dies, he writes Acts after Luke. Okay, any other questions about dating? I'm going to keep rolling here because there's one more item that I want to, I want to kind of talk about. We feel hard. That week off did wonders for y'all. It did wonders for me. Let's keep rolling, baby. Theophilus, can we detect an audience? So remember, when we talk about historical stuff, we talk about date, we talk about who, and we also talk about to whom. Both Luke and Acts are to Theophilus. I have two suggestions for Theophilus. I have two suggestions. Theophilus right here is a person named Theophilus who is an actual ranking official. I'm going to give you the second option here in a second. Theophilus translated from Greek 
lovers of God, theophilia, lovers of God. So is it because it's generally a general audience or is it to a specific person? Actually, don't know how we can land. Just kind of giving you a heads up. Totally unlike the other three Gospels, the Gospel of Luke amends the prologue to the beginning of his Gospel. It mentions a recipient and it mentions a reason. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. There's an apologetic to this. This is written so that you have, con that you have confidence. The use of most excellent is an important term here. You most excellent Theophilus. It's used only four times in the New Testament and all by Luke. Even though Theophilus is a common name of Greek origin, the use of most excellent when used by Luke only refers to officials. Acts 23, 26, Acts 24, 2, Acts 26, 25. So though the term can be a formal, friendly term, I think this unique use by Luke suggests something. It's the status of an official. New Testament Apocrypha. That right there is a New Testament apocryphal text. Right, keep in mind when we read Jewish Apocrypha, we're reading about the Maccabees. It doesn't necessarily mean it's false. It's just not inspired. The same with New Testament Apocrypha. I think it's part of the tradition is what I'm suggesting. Notice what it says. We are told that Theophilus of Antioch, which is very interesting because Luke is from where? Antioch, right? So it's from the same city, dedicated his house for the use of the church and that the chair was placed in it for the apostle Peter. Here you have a high-ranking official dedicating his whole home to a church. As it continues, so that Theophilus, who was more distinguished than all the men of the city, with fiery enthusiasm, consecrated the large basilica of his house as a church. So at some point, Theophilus is a converted Christian in high society that uses his home for the church in Antioch. Is it this Theophilus? Go ahead. 
Pseudo-Clementine recognition. Thank you. Yeah, she does. Okay. But keep in mind, Theophilus, I'll go back up, Warren, go ahead. You're good, okay. Um, but keep in mind, Theophilus as translated simply means God lover, lover of God. So another option for the recipients of the Gospel of Luke is simply a general Gentile audience who love God. You're going to hear me punt. I'm going to take a both-hand approach. I'm okay with it being actually Theophilus, a high-ranking official. And I'm totally fine with the double entendre, oh, Gentile lovers of God. Nineteen ninety-eight, Richard Bauckham wrote an article challenging the consensus of a localized, situated audiences of the gospel, of the gospels. It's rather difficult to overturn Bauckham's argument, in that the historical situation is nearly impossible to discern. Even with Luke, we're only given a single name and no other information. So his major argument is that all four Gospels were means for circulation and not localized communities. Here's that article right here. When Richard Bauckham speaks, I generally listen. Just FYI. If we get lost trying to find a Lucan community, we're, we're really doomed to failure at the outset because it's so hard to find. It's this rabbit trail you'll constantly be chasing and you actually won't deal with the theology of the text. And at the end of the day, what's, does it really turn the message of Luke if I say Theophilus, high-ranking official, general audience? Does that affect, right? So you constantly chase that. You'll actually never get to the theology of the text. That's, what I, that's essentially what I mean by that. Okay, any questions? Let's take a quick five. We'll come back to this. You guys are doing great. 